Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you happen to be joining us today. Welcome to our worship service and thank you for joining us. I hope that you feel uh, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit and, and uh, the fellowship of believers even as we gather together uh, once more in this way. I want to give you uh, quickly a, uh, an update on where things stand as far as we know with the possibility of reopening church. And so uh, just to let you know, this past uh, week, uh, myself and the other pastors in Clarny, the ministerial, uh, we had a meeting and we were discussing what we have heard from the province, which is very little. And so we've drafted a letter, which we have sent to our premier, Brian Pallister, as well as all of the other cabinet officials, including our MLA. And uh, the response I've heard back from them so far, simply we were requesting uh, consideration for reopening churches. And uh, of course, we would like to do so um, as soon as possible. And so the, re the reply I received from the Minister of Infrastructure uh, and uh, from, uh, from his correspondence, uh, he replied saying that senior officials are meeting regularly to review the parameters and we expect a decision will be coming soon to potentially increase group sizes. And so we're hopeful that this means that when phase two comes uh, on June 1st or, or somewhere around there, that this will include an increase in gathering sizes and that this may facilitate us being able to in some way regather once more physically in, in the church, even if that means going to possibly doing multiple services or, or other things like that. And so just to give you an update that we are working on that and hopeful that uh, we'll, we'll hear from the province favorably in this regard shortly. I'd also like to update you uh, on our baptism candidates. We have been uh, still going through our baptism classes over this past period, and our two candidates are Sarah Arnott and Tamara Moffat. And we are over halfway through our baptism classes and beginning to look ahead to their baptism. Now, of course, that would take place here, typically in, in mid to late June on a Sunday morning. We're praying that that will be possible. And uh, so if you remember them in, in your prayers as they prepare for this, that would be greatly appreciated for Sarah Arna and Tamara Moffat as they prepare to take this important step of faith and obedience to be baptized in Jesus' name. Now for the offering, uh, as usual, uh, we can't pass the basket, and so if you would like to make your tithe or offering, uh, please mail your check to the Clarny Mennonite Church, P.O. Box 969, Clarny, Manitoba, R0K1G0, or drop it off in person here in the church foyer, and there's an offering box located here for you to do so. I would now invite you to bow with me, and let's unite our hearts in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today with thankful hearts that you are good in all seasons. You are faithful and you have provided for us, even in these past months. And so, Lord, we thank you that uh, as you have been providing, we have faith that you will continue to provide. And so, Lord, as we have been, uh, our hearts are being uh, increasingly drawn towards our desire to see one another uh, as fellow believers in fellowship, once more, we, we continue to ask that you would give uh, that opportunity as soon as possible. We pray that you would be with our government officials, our premier, and our health officials as they deliberate on when uh, and how we are able to do so, and, and to do so responsibly and safely. And uh, so we just pray, Lord, that you would work um, in our elected officials and help them to make wise decisions 
I pray that you would grant us patience, and we pray as well that, uh, that we would be um, a part of, of the solution as things move forward. And so we ask, Lord, for this favor. Uh, we thank you for uh, those who are preparing to be baptized, and we think of Sarah, and we think of Tamara, and we thank you that their hearts are for you, that they have uh, committed their lives to you, and that in faith they are ready and preparing to take that important step to be identified uh, in your death and in your resurrection by entering the waters of baptism. And so I just ask your special blessing on them as they prepare, and I also pray for uh, the opportunity to be able to celebrate that uh, special day together as a family of faith. And so we ask for that as well, Lord. We also continue to pray in that regard for the opening for Bible camps uh, this coming summer, uh, and, and for other ministries, Lord, for vacation Bible schools and, uh, and other kids' clubs where your word is taught, we pray that they would have opportunity to continue to proclaim the gospel uh, in whatever form that takes this coming summer. And so we ask for these things, Lord. Father, we thank you now for your word and that it is alive and active, that it is here for us today. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, we I invite you to take Bibles and turn with me to our scripture reading for today, taken from the book of Psalms, and there we'll read chapter 2. Psalms chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So far the reading of God's word. Would you bow with me once more? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful word spoken through your servant David many years ago, but thank you that it is still alive and active and relevant for us today. It is a word of warning, but also a word of incredible encouragement and hope. And so I pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive it. I pray that you would speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, based on Psalm chapter 2, I've entitled this morning's sermon, the conspiracy to replace God. There's a tall tale told that one day a group of scientists got together and decided that they had finally figured out a way to replace God. So they picked one scientist to go and tell God that they were done with him. They didn't need him anymore. And so the scientist walked up to God and said, 
We're to the point where through the power of science, we can clone people and do many other incredible things that people said before only you could do, but now we can do them. And so we've decided that we no longer need you. Well, God listened very patiently, and after the scientist was done talking, God replied, Very well, how about this? Let's say we have a contest. We'll both make a man. Oh, great, the scientist replied. God added one more detail. We're going to do this just like I did way back in the beginning with Adam. And the scientist again agreed, sure, no problem at all. And so he proceeded to bend down and scoop up a handful of dirt. But immediately God slapped the dirt out of his hand and said, no, you go make your own dirt. Now, whether through science or philosophy or politics or raw power, there are countless men who have attempted to do what these scientists were foolishly attempting to do, and that is to replace God. In fact, there exists today a global conspiracy to replace God and a systematic plot against Christ's rule over our lives and over this world. And while it's sometimes easy to identify key figures who are part of this ongoing plot that stands in opposition to God, we must remember that the conspiracy to replace God and his rule over our lives and over this world is not authored or directed by any one man or any one group. And no matter how cunning or evil they may appear to be, they are not in charge. For remember that this is not a a new conspiracy. This is not a new plot against God. In fact, it is many ages old. The beginnings of this conspiracy did not even take place here on earth, but in heaven. For there the Bible tells us that a powerful angel named Lucifer led a third of the angels into a plot to overthrow and replace God. Of course, Lucifer's plot failed. And God cast him out of heaven and down to earth, where here he became known as the adversary, or Satan. However, Satan has not given up his rebellion against God or his desire to replace him. And so he remains to this very day the author and the architect of the ongoing conspiracy, the ongoing plot to overthrow and replace God and the rule and reign of Christ. As the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so here we see that we're not fighting against men, even though men be part of the plan. They're not in charge of this. The enemy, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, presided over by Satan himself, they are the architects of this grand conspiracy against God. And as I already said, this is not something new. In fact, some 3,000 years ago, King David accurately identified and described this conspiracy for us. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me again to Psalm chapter 2. And here within this psalm, we will hear four distinct voices. We will first hear the voice of rebellion. Then we will hear the voice of God. 
the voice of God's Son, and finally the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so now we listen first to the voice of rebellion, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations conspire and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Now here we, we hear this voice of resistance, of rebellion, and of revolt. It's a voice of defiance against God and against his anointed one. Now sinful mankind, ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, we are born into sin. And so our rebellious hearts naturally do not want to submit to God's rule over our lives. And this has been true since the garden. It's been true since that time that Cain refused to listen to God's word of warning and instead murdered his brother Abel. And it's continued on through the ages. In David's time, when a new king came to the throne of Israel, the surrounding nations would see it as an opportunity to rise up and rebel against someone who was young, untested, and untried. They, they sensed weakness and they sought to exploit it. Now, originally, this psalm, Psalm chapter 2, was composed by David as a coronation psalm, celebrating the coronation of a new king in Israel. It was likely sung at David's own coronation ceremony, and he reflects on the attitude of the surrounding nations, even as he's being crowned king. For he knew that they conspired and plotted against him to overthrow him as the Lord's anointed king. But as we shall see, their plots were doomed to fail before they had even begun. For as David writes, why do they conspire and plot in vain? You see, even though he was in the crosshairs of their conspiracies to overthrow him, he even then had the faith to, to see that it was all in vain. And quite simply, David knew that they would not be able to overthrow God's anointed one no matter what. Now, while David, of course, is the first anointed one spoken of in the historical context, he is not the last anointed one. For this royal psalm is also a prophetic word. It points ahead to the Lord's final anointed one, none other than the Lord Jesus himself. And so it comes then as no surprise that when Jesus physically arrived on earth, when he physically arrived on the scene, most of the people ended up rebelling against him. And the rulers conspired to kill him. And later in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 27, Peter quotes Psalm chapter 2 as being fulfilled in Christ. When he prays, You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now neither the Jews nor the Gentiles wanted Jesus to be their king. And so they conspired to have him killed and they succeeded. Jesus was crucified, problem solved, right? Well, not so fast. Of course, we know three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, just as he said, and even now is seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of all authority over every king and over every ruler on this entire earth. Even more, he is king and ruler in the heavenlies, 
including over that age-old adversary, Satan himself. Now, you might think that this would just put an end to all of the rebellion against the Lord and his anointed one, that it would just end it once and for all. But the sad fact is that there are still many today, many, who are still following in Satan's age-old rebellion and refuse to submit their lives to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Svetlana Stalin, the daughter of the infamous Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin, she tells of how at the end of her life, her father lay dying, plagued with terrifying hallucinations, when suddenly he sat halfway up in bed, clenched his fists towards the heavens once more, and shook it violently. And then finally, having expended his last ounce of energy, he fell back upon his pillow and was stone dead. The incredible irony of Stalin's entire life is that at one time, Joseph Stalin had been a seminary student preparing to enter the ministry. However, as he came of age, he came under the influence of Nietzsche and Karl Marx's philosophies that taught that only the weak needed God. And so Joseph Stalin, believing that he no longer needed God, that he was strong enough to rise up apart from God, made a decisive break from his childhood faith. He rejected God entirely. And this dramatic and complete reversal of conviction resulted in a pure hatred for all religion. And he was so vocal about his opposition to God and faith of all types that Lenin was so impressed with him that he chose Stalin and elevated him into a position of succession as the dictator of the Soviet Empire. And so, after the countless bloodshed that he inflicted on the nations of the world, including not the least of which were his own people, after all of that, even as Joseph Stalin lay dying on his deathbed, knowing that in any moment he was ready to go into eternity, his one last gesture was still one of defiance and rebellion as he raised his fist and shook it towards God. Of course, we know that in that very next moment, even as he shook his fist, he went and stood before God face to face. Now you see, in much the same way, when we rebel against the Lord's rule over our lives, when we shake our fist at heaven, believing that we are strong enough or smart enough, that we don't need him. Faith, religion, God, it's for the weak. I'm smarter than that. I'm stronger than that. When we do that, we are in effect replacing the Lord's rule with our own. And we are in effect saying to God, And to the Lord Jesus, his anointed, the same as what those in the days of old said, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. We don't need him. I am in control. I am in charge of my own life. But my friends, hear me. To live and to die with a clenched fist towards heaven. Rejecting and rebelling against God's reign and rule over your life is to seal your own fate and ensure your ultimate destruction. So listen now to the second voice, the voice of God 
the Father. Psalm chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now here, God makes it abundantly clear to anyone who would rebel against him, anyone who would plot against him, he laughs. All of your efforts, all of your your machinations, all of your cunning that you think you are so clever in, God just sees it all, he looks at it all, and he laughs in scorn. And then he declares, I have set my king on Zion. And there is nothing you can do about it. In fact, God goes so far as to ridicule those who are opposing them, scoffing and scorning at them. And in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, it speaks of those who sit in the, in the seat of scoffers. And here the Lord scoffs at those who would sit in those seats. He mocks those who would mock him, those who believe that they could actually undo his plan and overthrow him. He rebukes them, and his words strike terror into their hearts. There was a young man named Adoniram. And Aram was one of those mockers. He finished at the top of his college class and headed to New York City to seek fame and fortune as an actor or as a writer. He had renounced his father's belief in a personal God. His sophisticated college education made him too smart for something like that, something so primitive, and prayer was utterly meaningless to him. Even so, by the age of 20, Adoniram didn't feel right about his life or his direction. He became disillusioned, and so he headed back home to Plymouth, Massachusetts. He stopped for a night along the way and was, in fact, dying. In the darkness, Adoniram reflected on the possibility of his own death, his own mortality, and he thought about returning to his father's faith. But then he thought about his old college buddy, Jacob Eames. Jacob was a skeptic, the very one, in fact, who had turned Adoniram so violently against his father's faith. And he wondered to himself, if I were to return to my father's old faith, if I returned to God, what would Jacob think if I became a Christian? He would mock me, he would scorn me, I'd be the laughing stock of the town. And he wrestled with these thoughts throughout the night, even as he couldn't sleep for the man's moaning next door. Finally, in the early morning light, Adoniram got up and he went to the innkeeper. That poor old man in the next room, how is he, he asked. He passed away early this morning, came the reply. And in fact, he wasn't old at all. He was in fact a young man, just about your age. Well, for some reason, Adoniram asked, well, what was his name? It was a silly question, really. He didn't know anyone in this part of the country that he was traveling through. But the innkeeper replied, well, his name, I think, was Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames, the very same friend who had ridiculed his father's faith. Adoniram was utterly dazed. He returned to Massachusetts and to his father, but all he could think about was the word lost. Lost, repeated over and over again in his head. I am utterly lost. 
After three months of struggle, Adoniram finally made what he called a solemn dedication of God, of himself to God. And you may recognize the name Adoniram Judson because he became famous as being the pioneer of American foreign missions. What a difference when we submit our lives to the reign and the rule of Christ. The friend, the one who had mocked and rebelled, was the one who died in terror all alone. But that was the turning point for Adoniram, whose very name points himself to his creator that he was made for. So my friends, it doesn't do us any good to fight against God. It doesn't do us any good to mock God because God always has the last laugh. Don't listen to the voice of the rebels. Don't listen to the, to the voices of the scoffers and the mockers and the critics and the cynics. Listen to the voice of God. Listen to his word of warning and turn to him before it's too late. And now, thirdly, let's listen to the voice of God's Son. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, that was part of God's promise to David as king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David an eternal dynasty, one that would endure forever. And he tells David that his offspring would rule on the throne of Israel forever. And God says of each of those offspring, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so for this reason, from this declaration of the Lord, whenever one of David's descendants became king of Israel... On his coronation day, when the crown was put upon his head, he would take on the title of Son of God. And that was because God promised to be a father to all of David's successors upon the throne. Now, of course, we know that once again, Jesus was born in every way according to the prophecies in the line of David. The final fulfillment of this prophetic word, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. And this is fully revealed in John chapter 3 verse 16 as the only begotten son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we hear the beautiful echo of those words the begotten of the Father, the begotten Son. And in this, we also find that Jesus is not only the Savior and King of Israel, but he is the Savior and King of the entire world. All of the nations of the world belong to him, even to the ends of the earth, and he will crush any who rebel. He will smash them to pieces. Now, in Egypt, in ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh he would use his scepter to smash clay jars that represented rebellious cities or nations. And he would do this symbolically to say, this is what I will do to them. And that's the picture we have here of the king putting an end to any rebellion against his rule. He symbolically smashes the jars 
that, that symbolize their opposition against him. And this foreshadows what he will yet do to them, just as surely as the Egyptian pharaohs would then ride out against the nations who oppose them. And so rest assured that when the angels declared in Acts chapter 1 that this same Jesus, who has been taken from you up to heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Rest assured that this is true. Jesus is coming back. And this time, he is coming with an iron scepter to rule and to smash to pieces all those who will stand in rebellion against his reign and against his rule, and none will be able to stand before him. The voices of the rebels will be silenced forever. They will be trampled underfoot. They will be cast into the everlasting fire for all of eternity. This is what is coming when the king returns in his full reign and rule. And so, my friends, listen to the Father's voice of warning. Listen to the Son's voice of resolve that he will rule. He will be installed upon Zion. This is not an if question. This is only a when question. The day is coming when all rebels will be silenced once and for all. And so finally, listen now to the gracious voice of the Holy Spirit. Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now serve and rejoice are worship terms in the Bible. And we are to do it with fear and trembling. Because Jesus is king. He is king. He is above all. And therefore worship him. Therefore stand in awe of him. Therefore honor him with your lives. And Psalm chapter 2 verse 12 continues. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now in Bible days, in, in the days of old, when you came before a mighty king, you would bow down, prostrate before them, and you kiss the hem of their garment or even their feet as an act of homage or honor. And so it says, kiss the son. Humble yourself before the son in obedience. Prostrate yourself before him. Honor him as your king and as your Lord because authority, power, dominion, and yes, judgment are his to administer. And that day, assuredly, that day is coming. So honor the king today. Sam Bronfen, the late CEO of the Seagram Company, he once entered a conference room and he was anxious to get on with the meeting, so he just plopped in the nearest chair. And one of his young assistants immediately said to him, No, Mr. Bronfman, you're supposed to be sitting at the head of the table. And young, ma young man replied, Mr. Bronfman, Wherever I sit is the head of the table. And that's the way it is with Jesus. He is our king. Wherever he is, he is in charge. Worship him, honor him, and finally, trust him. Instead of trying to fight him, find your refuge in him. And look at the end of verse 12. 
Psalm 2, verses 12, the second half says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, my friends, a lot of this psalm can, can appear fearsome because he's coming with wrath. And it says to kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. But my friends, this is not because he is an angry God or a vengeful God. No, this is because he is a holy God. And he cannot stand the presence of sin and rebellion. And one day he will, he will cast it aside forever. And thankfully, not only is he a holy, holy God, but he is a loving and gracious God. And so if we humble ourselves before him, if we kiss the Son, and in humble faith put ourselves on his mercy, not only will he forgive us and receive us, but he will protect us and we will find refuge in him and in his mighty strength and power. For it is only in him that we can find true peace, true happiness, and true shelter under the rule of the Lord's anointed. Janelle Guzman McMillan was the very last person to be rescued from ground zero alive. On that fateful day on September 11th, when those aircraft crashed into the World Trade Center, eventually them falling in on their footprint. She had been trapped in the rubble of what remained of the Twin Towers for 27 hours when the last firefighters heard her calling and managed to pull her up. Now this 30-year-old single mother had only been on the job as a Port Authority clerk for some nine months when the terrorists attacked the World Trade Center on September 11th of 2001. When the North Tower collapsed, her job was no longer on the 64th floor. There was no 64th floor. Her vocation became trying to stay alive, entombed there in floors of twisted steel and smoking debris, while hoping and praying for a miracle. As Macmillan would later tell reporters, her head was pinned between two pieces of concrete. Her leg was sandwiched by pieces of Her toes had been done hours ago. Her right hand pinned under her leg, and only her left hand was free. Macmillan, who had been raised in a Roman Catholic home in Trinidad, had long since fallen away from her faith. But there in the rubble, her thoughts turned to God. Thinking of her 14-year-old daughter, she prayed that her body would at least be found so that it could receive a proper burial. Becoming a bit more bold, she then revised her prayer and asked the Lord that if she had to die, that she could at least make it to the hospital so that she could see her daughter one last time. But as the hours passed and as faith seemingly began to bubble up in her heart, her prayers changed once more and she boldly began to pray and ask her Heavenly Father to rescue her alive. I was praying to God, she later said. God, please save my life. Give me a second chance. I promise I will change my life and do your will. Macmillan remembers saying that prayer over and over again. God, please save me. God, please give me a second chance. Please save me. She had no idea how many times in those hours she had repeated that prayer. But shortly after she was rescued by firefighters, upon seeing the, re the reflective gear of a fallen col colleague, they just happened to find her in the rebel 
Only minutes before she said no one could be left here alive. And when they finally pulled her out and they managed to bring her to, the words they heard her mumble were, God, please save me. My life is yours. God did save her in more ways than one. Not only was her body and her life saved that day, but her soul. She found her refuge in Christ. Even though she had years before turned her back on him, even though she had rebelled against him, when she submitted to the Lord, she found a place of safety. My friends, the same thing can happen to you. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've rebelled in the past, no matter if you've clenched your fist at heaven, you can still find a place of safety and joy and refuge in the Lord if you are willing to humble yourself, to submit before your King, the Lord Jesus. Stop running from him. Stop resisting him. Stop thinking you can do life better on your own. Instead, run to him and find peace and rest for your soul. Don't listen anymore to the voice of the scoffers, the voice of the rebels. Don't be deceived by Satan's plot. Instead, listen to the Father's voice. Listen to the Son's voice and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and his gentle invitation to submit to the Lord's rule and reign over your life and find in him refuge for your life and for your soul. For it is only in and through him that we can find that sure refuge. For when all is said and done, every conspiracy to replace God will fail, and every plot against Christ will be defeated, and Satan and every rebel will be destroyed. But every loyal subject of the king, everyone who kisses the Son in humble submission to him, we will reign with him forever and ever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you today that you are king, you are Lord, and you are sovereign over all of life. And so, Father, if there are any here today who feel that conviction of your word by the Holy Spirit, that recognize that they've been rebelling against you, Father, would you graciously call them to yourself, that in you there is salvation, there is pardon, there is restoration before it's too late. And so, Lord, I pray that you would have your salvation be found by any listening today who have not yet made that decision to humble themselves in faith before you. And Lord, for all of us who have made that decision, but perhaps in some way have been rebelling against you in our thoughts or in our actions, not in full submission to your reign over our lives, I pray, Lord, give us the strength even now to repent and to turn to you in full obedience and faith that you are in control of our lives, you are king, and we belong to you. And I pray finally, Lord, that as we consider the conspiracies in the world opposing you, rebelling against you, plotting against you, we thank you, Lord, that even though we can so easily be discouraged by them, even as we can find ourselves in the crosshairs of the enemy's schemes, I thank you, Lord, for that encouragement, 
that they are doomed to fail. Only in you is victory assured, and to be hidden in you is to be guaranteed victory. And so we thank you, Lord, that through faith in your anointed one, we can be firm and secure of that victory, even as we stand today. And so, Lord, I pray, encourage each heart, strengthen us, give us the desire to live fully and truly for you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you. Have a very good week.